Joseph, Jesus, and Mary, help my friend, Mr. Bailey. Help my son, George, tonight. He never thinks about himself, God. That's why he's in trouble. George is a good guy. Give him a break, God. I love him, dear Lord. Watch over him tonight. Please, God, something's the matter with Daddy. Please bring Daddy back. Hello, Joseph. Trouble? Looks like we'll have to send someone down. A lot of people asking for help for a man named George Bailey. George Bailey? Yes, tonight's his crucial night. You're right. We'll have to send someone down immediately. Whose turn is it? That's why I came to see you, sir. It's that clockmaker's turn again. Oh, Clarence hasn't got his wings yet, has he? We've passed him up right along. Because you know, sir, he's got the IQ of a rabbit. Yes, but he's got the faith of a child. Simple. Joseph, send for Clarence. You sent for me, sir? Yes, Clarence. A man down on earth needs our help. Splendid. Is he sick? No, worse. He's discouraged. At exactly 10.45 p.m. Earth time, that man will be thinking seriously of throwing away God's greatest gift. Oh, dear, dear, his life. Then I've only an hour to dress. What are they wearing now? You'll spend that hour getting acquainted with George Bailey. Sir, if I should accomplish this mission, I mean, uh, might I perhaps win my wings? I've been waiting for over 200 years now, sir, and people are beginning to talk. What's that book you've got there? Oh, The Adventures of Tom Sawyer. Clarence, you do a good job with George Bailey, and you'll get your wings. Oh, thank you, sir. Thank you. Poor George. Sit down. Sit down? What do we... If you're going to help a man, you want to know something about him, don't you? Well, naturally, of course. Well, I... keep your eyes open. I was watching the movie the other night. Amazing. The first part of the movie goes to childhood of George and his brother Harry when they're out sledding and they're sledding in the pond and Harry falls in the... Uh, cracks through the ice. And then when he goes to... Uh, George goes to the uh, shop where he got hit in the head there. Mr. Gower, quite a scene there, but what's amazing when you look at it, that was supposed to be like in 1919, you could see Coca-Cola and you could see National Geographic. I found that to be fascinating. You know, you, you, you fast forward a hundred years and it's like, you see those little, little nuances, but the, the childhood was really a big part. It really like what childhood he had when uh, he confronted Potter was pretty much Towards the end of the movie there, he did the same thing. He was always, like, very hesitant about Potter. George just never crossed over that line to, this, to Mr. Potter, and and that's what made the film really engaging towards George Bailey. This rabble you're talking about, they do most of the working and paying and living and dying in this community. Well, is it too much to have them work and pay and live and die in a couple of decent rooms and a bath? Anyway, my father didn't think so. People were human beings to him, but to you, a warped, frustrated old man, they're cattle. Well, in my book, he died a much richer man than you'll ever be. I'm not interested in your book. I'm talking about the building and loan. I know very well what you're talking about. You're talking about something you can't get your fingers on, and it's galling you. That's what you're talking about, I know. Well, I, I, I've said too much. I, 
You're the you're the board here. You do what you want with this thing. There's just one thing more, though. This town needs this measly one-horse institution, if only to have some place where people can come without crawling to Potter. Uh, Frank Capra, he directed many actors and actresses in the 30s and also in the 40s. And uh, just some of the notable ones that he directed. Clark Gable, 1934, it happened one night. 1939, Mr. Smith goes to Washington, Jimmy Stewart and Gene Arthur. Mr. D goes to town, 1936, Gary Cooper, Gene Arthur, and Lionel Stander. Lionel Stander, you may remember, he was Max on Heart to Heart in the early 80s. So uh, <laughs> Lionel Stander, I, I, I said, I see that name before. And then was, <laughs> I looked it up, it was Max, Heart to Heart. And that was one of my, how could I forget that? That was one of my favorite 80s shows. And another show, a movie he did with Jimmy Stewart was You Can't Take It With You in 1938 with Gene Arthur and Lionel Barrymore. Remember that name, Lionel Barrymore. Oh, yeah. So, uh, Frank Capra, Jimmy Stewart definitely have a history. But in 1946, It's a Wonderful Life comes out. And this is, we talked about this on previous episodes, one of my all-time favorite movies. This movie was not well received in 1946, but as time has worn on, it has able to garner this unbelievable popularity. We're going to be talking about It's a Wonderful Life. So, first of all, what are your thoughts on A Wonderful Life? Well, he, the first film you mentioned of him was 34. I, I wanted to give this odd little tidbit that when Capra was nominated for his first Best Director Oscar, it was 33 for Lady for a Day mm -hmm. and was being presented by Will Rogers. Uh, and when he opened the envelope, he said, come and get it, Frank. And <laughs> Capra got up. It was halfway to the stage when he realized he was talking about Frank Lloyd, who was getting the Oscar for Cavalcade in 33. But yeah, it's a wonderful life. Other films that have become cult classics are often flops at the time. Look at like a Rocky Horror Picture Show mm -hmm. didn't do anything. And years later, got dug up, became a cult classic. They Live, John Carpenter, didn't really do all that great 35 years ago when it first came out. It's a cult classic today, too. Mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, you, longevity... It, is bred, it seems, from a flop <laughs> at <Yeah>. first. <laughs> you know, I watched I watched it's a wonderful life the other night, and I've watched it dozens of times. And I watched it the other night, and I was really like a couple things that I saw that I did, having seen some things. We'll talk about that later on as we talk about the movie. But it's amazing. You know, it starts out with George being young, and then it starts out with George getting. Um, getting married and having his troubles. And at the end, we, we know what they win. If you haven't seen it, but for those who have, we know what the ending is. So just to highlight some of the actors and actresses that were in the movie. So Jimmy Stewart, obviously one of the all-time great actors. Donna Reed played Mary Hatch. Lionel Barrymore played Mr. Potter. And uh, I, I focused on Mr. Potter a little bit more on the one I watched the other night. And he was not a very nice person. Uh, there some things. No, there was, no, no. There were some things that I saw in that movie that were totally like I was like, 
wow, that was like, you know, I, I've, every, I've always focused on Jimmy Stewart, but I, fa- I focused on Lionel Barrymore. He played that perfect. Thomas Mitchell played Uncle Billy. Uncle Billy, Thomas Mitchell, he was also in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. And probably the most important character would have to be Clarence Henry Travers, wouldn't you think? Because he was the one that was supposed to get his wings. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Well, yeah, the, the, the Lionel as Potter uh, <laughs> does kind of get overlooked, but it's why I can't, I wrote an article at the Liberty Beacon dot com the other day the politics of Potterville because we normally focus on the Bedford Falls and the George and the Clarence aspect so I focused on the Potter aspect of the film that was much overlooked and the hidden politics in that movie because everybody looks at it as a feel-good Christmas film now, but there's a lot of hidden messages really in there if you look, know to look for them, like Die Hard when we talked about, right? right? Uh, it's a Christmas film, and there's a lot of Christmas hidden Easter egg gems in there that make it the Christmas film it is. Once you know you see them, you may not realize, but yeah, Clarence was what really made that movie work, obviously. It couldn't work without him. And the fact that you take a serious drama but put some comedy through the bumbling angel, right? A comedic uh, sub-thread really helps a film. And I think it was in a a, a large part why it came back, not necessarily because of Jimmy Stewart, but because of the well-rounded nature the overall film is. And of course, Donna Reed went on to become much bigger uh, after that movie. And a lot of people loved her. So mm-hmm. they rediscovered that movie through love of her and looking back at her other older stuff. What are you doing? Picketing? Hello, Mary. I just happened to be passing by here. Yes, so I noticed. Have you made up your mind? How's that? Have you made up your mind? About what? About coming in. Your mother just phoned and said you were on your way over to pay me a visit. My mother just called you? Well, how'd she know? Didn't you tell her? I didn't tell anybody. I just went for a walk. Happened to be passing by here. That's... What, what are you... Uh... For a walk, that's all. I'll be downstairs, Mother. All right, dear. Well, are you coming in or aren't you? Well, I'll come in for a minute. Yeah, uh, lives are complicated. Of course, right? <laughs> and we all personally evolve a degree. And he was indeed a more meekish, timid kind of personality. And that was part of the important character development to get you uh, on his side to want him to come out of that shell, so to speak, or more or less, to 
to become that hero that people seen him as. And then, of course, that whole suicide sub-thread importance there. Uh, obviously, anyone dealing with depression and anxiety, I want to say to you, your life matters. I talk about It's a Wonderful Life in my book, In a Suicide Sub-Thread. Remember, It's a Wonderful Life is a very overly dramatic uh, thing. It's meant to be, right? It's hyperbolic to make mm-hmm. a point. But things everyone does on a daily basis that they don't recognize is adding up to things important in other people's lives, you're not going to have a clearance to come show you, but they're there. Your life has meaning. Your life has value. And that film, in part, demonstrates that in overly dramatic fashion. And yeah, I, I think some film. people lose that regarding their own personal standpoint. Because, again, that's so overly dramatic. Most people's lives aren't going to ever be like that. That doesn't mean they don't have value and you haven't contributed to something that may matter to someone else who then goes on to cure cancer if you weren't here. Their life didn't have that meaning. That may not have happened. So uh, trying to take that drama and apply it to life today. When you look back at the movie, you know, George Bailey, he had his brother who was a war hero. Sam Wainwright, you know, he was the successful businessman. From what I gather, a multimillionaire. And George just never, George was an integral part of Bedford Falls. but. He just never saw it until the very end that he was important to everybody. And the opening part of the movie, I thought, was was tremendous. I mean, it was just showed this stars out the galaxy, and then they called for Clarence, and then Clarence comes over from the left, and he just like little star here, and these other big stars are talking. Pretty, it was pretty cool that first opening scene. <laughs> yeah, it, you know, and again, it shows the importance or the contrast uh, of the bigger greater picture, but yet our little existence plays a big part still in that grander, broader picture. Anything about Clarence, I thought, was there was a lot of comedy in what he was doing, like you said, and I think um, when he had to get serious, he got serious. He told George that he he had to change his ways, because if he didn't, and uh, that scene there where he would, no one knew who George was and he goes up to his mother. I think that that was the turning point for me in that movie towards the end when his own mother didn't even recognize him and she had that boarding house. I found that to be when it really hit him that he was just at his wits end. What did you think about that part? Because I found that part to be very, uh, it was very, when you watch it, it's like, whoa. I mean, he's just like, he doesn't have anybody to turn to. He's always trying to find that person. And that person goes, who are you? I don't know who you are. It was I mean, he just kept, t- kept tucking punch after punch after punch. But that part was really, uh, really dramatic in the movie. Yeah, in a sense, uh, that almost uh, those aspects remind me, and I think Camper borrowed from the concept of I'm having of a Christmas Carol, right? Without the, the same, you know, the three spirits will 
Clarence, in a way, was a single spirit in the sense of a Christmas mm -hmm. carol was in that regard. And, yeah, showing him uh, the loss of all connection of everyone he knew and loved was important in showing him uh, the impact that mm -hmm. was no other way to unfold or deliver when the the, the part of the film that really uh, like i said earlier that mirror you know you look at george young george when he was sticking up for his father and i really felt even when his father passed away he still he had the dignity and uh potter potter was just dastardly i mean he was just <laughs> He was just a nasty dude. And then, well, you want a villain of a movie. Again, yeah, I know. He it's was real overly villain. dramatic, right? I mean, the villain has got to be all evil. Unlike gray areas in reality, to dramatically portray it in, in books, right? You have the hero, you have the villain, and you, you want to avoid those gray areas of making the villain actually look like a complicated and actually mistreated perhaps person that made him the way he was. You can't let somebody feel sorry for the villain <laughs> or it ruins the point you're trying to get at. <laughs> yeah. Looking at uh, Potter now, there were certain points in the movie where I thought uh, he seemed to. You think he would be genuine, and he always had that. Uh, that you know, he always had that thing in the back of his mind that he was out to you know mess with and and cause the downfall of George Bailey. He really never thought even more of his father. Forget about George. He didn't really think of him as an equal. And it, it goes to show during the course of the movie when uh, uh, the scene where they're in the office and. Uh, and I saw that when I was watching it the other night. And it really, like, you see the contrast. You see Potter. He's looking down at George when he goes to sit down in that chair. He's smoking the cigar. And he's, like, like literally sitting on the ground like he's, like, sitting in a child's chair. You know, Potter has a picture of himself in the back, you know, on the wall. And then when they go to George, you see Potter, president. So everything was, he was all about Potter, Potter, Potter in the office. And then there's other scenes where George is in his house and he has a picture of his father up on the wall behind there. So, and there was also humility, right? Again, to show the good guy has humility and family roots, whereas the evil guy's all about himself. And you see that Potter, more or less, also, and George, even both characters portrayed again with Stuart in Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. You see that same dichotomy. There too. And then when at towards the end of the movie when George knows that everybody he, he knows who everybody knows who he is and things and he goes running to Potter. And Potter Potter just wanted to throw him in jail. I mean he just never he's the only one in the film. Even the bank examiner gave money and he started singing. I thought that was pretty cool. But the, you know, it's a two over two hour film and you see George when he's in high school and then he gets married and then he has the business and then the war's going on. And there was a little bit in that movie of It's a Wonderful Life, a little bit of prelude to war showing some, it was a little like a 30, 45 second clip of just things going on outside of uh, Bedford Falls with the war. So it kind of like 
kept it in the back of my mind, but the war was always in the background because his brother Harry. Yeah, now I think you touched on something there. You probably didn't intend to go down, but going back to why it may have been somewhat of a flop, uh, back then films weren't that long, right? So it may have been a harder sell at that time for that movie due to its length. And people would often see double or triple features of shorter films. Mm -hmm. And it was multiple separate content as opposed to, uh, I'm going to sit through a two-hour film without an intermission? (laughs) I don't think so. So (laughs) I think you accidentally touched on part of why it might have not done so well back then, whereas it does better now. I think that makes a lot of sense because uh, you had films back then where that were, you know, shorter in duration. But uh, let's see it, here. Just for the expense alone, film was expensive. Yeah, the then. budget. It, <laughs> yeah, the budget I mean, for, now, for Wonderful Life was what? Uh, $3 million. $3 million was the budget for It's a Wonderful Life. Now and, everything's done on digital and, you know, multiple terabyte uh, hard drives to throw tons and tons and tons of digital capture visuals to edit up and a three hour movie now it it would be is nothing like it like I forget what Avatar 2 was another long one I didn't bother to see that because it was too long and frankly I just thought it was Basically, at the original Avatar, just over again. So, mm-hmm. you know, it was fascinating too. Uh, he and Mary got married, and they're in the. I thought it was raining and pouring rain. It was a dreary day when they got married, and they're outside and they get in the limousine and they're getting driven to their honeymoon, and then <laughs> they're having a run at the bank, and it's that just happens to be at Bailey Building and Loans Association. It's out of the car, and Mary says, don't go, don't go. And he ends up running, and you could just see the stress of running there. And then there's that one moment where he's looking at all the depositors, all the people who bank at that building, and he's like, it's him against them. And it's like, wow, what's he going to say? First, Harry, now George. Annie, we're just two old maids now. You speak for yourself, Miss B. If either you two see a stranger around here, it's me. Hey, look, there's somebody driving this cab. Bert, the cop sent this over. He said to float away to Happy Land on the bubbles. Oh, look at this old Bert. By the way, uh, where are you two going on this here now, honeymoon? Where are we going? Look at this. There's the kitty, Ernie. Here, come on. Call her, Mary. Oh, I feel like a bootlegger's wife. Look. You know what we're going to do? We're going to shoot the works. A whole week in New York, a whole week in Bermuda, the highest hotels, the oldest champagne, the richest caviar, the hottest music, and the prettiest wife. Oh, Oh, that does it. Then what? (laughs) Then what, honey? After that, who cares? That does it. Come here. Come here. Come here. Don't look now, but there's something funny going on over there at the bank, George. I've never really seen one, but that's got all the earmarks of being a run. Again, I mean, that's 
I also have a book, How to Write a Book and Get It Published, Hints, Tips, and Techniques, right? There's character development that we kind of alluded to. And then, of course, there's scene development. Well, that thing can't take place on a nice, bright, sunshiny day, <laughs> right? You, you've got to add to the gloom of the the point of that scene by adding ugly, dreary, rainy day. Yeah, it's like everything's go it gotta go wrong right to overly again dramatize those points yeah he had i think george had probably two minutes of joy in that whole movie when he was in the limousine <laughs> and after that it was just two minutes of it the way he was like <laughs> it was just the way he played that part was just tremendous but yeah the way he ran and like he's running there was some correlation there. He's running in the rain, and at the end of the movie, he's running in the snow. I just found that to be a good parallel of you know, car into the into the tree at the end of the movie, and he's like, yeah, yeah, like this, and he's and it's just I found that to be a little correlation there, you know. Yeah, but I think those are contrasting correlations, yeah, dichotomy, the rain, the dreariness. Uh, most people think of rainy days as negative, as opposed to Christmas time mm -hmm. and snow and associating with the joy of snow on Christmas Eve and anticipation of Christmas Day. So I, I think for, you know, those who will see it, that was the intention. I, I mean, obviously, I can't read deceased Frank Capra's mind here, mm -hmm. but that's the way I see it, you know, as an author, as a writer. I, I That's how I envision why you would do that. Mm -hmm. And uh, the another big part in that movie was uh, actually when George was thinking about committing suicide and Clarence just, it's amazing how he goes, help, help. And like George, again, uh, the inner how, how instinct, right, the inner instinct of the good guy. Again, the whole thread, despite everything in his life, he was raised right, and he, he was a good guy, and Clarence figuring out, I can play to that, make him the hero, and realize he's always been that hero. Yeah, and Clarence at times he also doubted uh he, he also doubted whether it was worth it to get his uh his wings during the because he George could George was a little bit difficult at times. And until George hit rock bottom, he didn't um he, it was just amazing how uh those two played uh that part. And it was uh that part there when they both were in the I guess it was the watchtower or the tower or the room of the bridge and uh their clothes are drying. He goes, AS2, what's AS2? It was like an interstellar galactic Designation, thing. yeah, yeah. And the guy in the chair, the guy who was the, the foreman of the bridge there, like the, he had his chair, like leaning back and he slipped and he, he left the place. He left the, he left the room there. I thought that was, that was, that was pretty funny. <laughs> <laughs> I didn't have time to get some stylish underwear. Wife gave me this on my last birthday. <laughs> I passed away in it. Oh, Tom Sawyer's drying out too. 
you'd read the new book Mark Twain's writing now. How did you happen to fall in? I didn't fall in. I jumped in to save George. You what? You're... To save me? Well, I did, didn't I? You didn't go through with it, did you? Go through with what? Suicide. Oh, it's against the law to commit suicide around here. Yeah, it's against the law where I come from, too. Well, where do you come from? Heaven. I had to act quickly. That's why I jumped in. I knew if I were drowning, you'd try to save me. You see, you did. And that's how I saved you. Uh, uh, very funny. Your lip's bleeding, George. Yeah. I got a bust in the jaw in answer to a prayer a little bit ago. Oh, no, 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 George. I'm the answer to your prayer. That's why I was sent down here. How'd you know my name? Oh, I know all about you. I've watched you grow up from a little boy. What are you, a mind reader or something? <laughs> well, who are you, then? Clarence Oddbody, AS2. Oddbody. AS2, what, what, what's that, AS2? Angel, second class. So, uh, and an aside, uh, before I forget while I'm thinking about it, an another aspect of this is that Capra, at the end, lamented how, you know, after time, it entered dom public domain and studios colorized the film. Now, I mean, this modern era, you're hard-pressed to get uh, a younger person to look at anything black and white. So I get the whole Turner classic desire to colorize mm -hmm. all these films to sell them to a newer, younger audience. Uh, I don't have a problem with the colorization, but obviously if that's your baby and that's how it was done, uh, obviously the clothing and scenery and everything is uh, carefully thought through to how is this going to present on this black and white medium. And now colorization, it's a whole new interpretation of uh -huh. people deciding what that might or should look like. It's not quite, it's your film, but it's not. I think you understand what I mean. Yeah. And that film is, uh, the black and white version of It's a Wonderful Life is public domain, but the color version is not. So, Correct. Uh, so you remember the part in the movie where they're dancing and the two, uh, the two gentlemen there were conspiring to open up the floor to the pool? Do you remember that scene? Where the, pool, <laughs> the floor came apart? <laughs> yeah. So, yeah. You know who that person was who, uh, did that, who turned the key by chance? No, I don't recall. Just, uh, I'm not trying to stump you or anything like that. I had to look at it, and I just found that out. So that was, uh, remember the Little Rascals? Oh, yeah. yeah. Alfalfa. That was Alfalfa. <laughs> Carl, yeah, I don't remember that, too. I, I just found that out, I mean, after all these years. Um, How apropos to know that, though, when yeah. you think just from the title, being part of the Little Rascals Club, that he would indeed be the rascal doing that, right? <laughs> <laughs> well, his name was Carl Dean Switzer. He was also an American singer. He was a child actor. Definitely remember him from his days on the Little Rascals, Our Gang. 
He was born on August 7th, 1927, and he died in 1959. So I think, yeah, if, if it wasn't planned, it's one of those great cosmic coincidences. Like I said, to think of him as a little rascal, and indeed there he is a little rascal in that film. <laughs> <laughs> I just found that to be really cool. I mean, when I when I read it and I was like, man, he, do, he does look like him. It does. I mean, I had to go back and watch it again. I said, yeah, it was, uh, I think that's pretty neat. Yeah, so, I mean, obviously there's a whole lot of films that uh, people play bit parts in. Uh, even uh, people who are more famous uh sometimes will take a little bit cameo just for the sake of it you know what i mean so you mm-hmm. you could find these people sometimes in in odd places like that yeah one of the other things about the movie which i found to be pretty evident of the time of when this movie came out I was watching the movie and I saw, like, I thought it was a shadow, but it was an armband on his left arm, on George's left arm during after his father passed away. And that was a form of mourning for a family member. It was depicted at that time for It's a Wonderful Life. So I found that to be pretty interesting as well. Um, I thought it was a shadow, and I said, that's a black armband. So I said, let me let me just look that up, and that's what that was. So I thought that to be uh, another thing that I saw that after all these years, you know, you watch movies all the time, you pick out new things. And uh yeah, an older tradition that we don't really have anymore. But what has borne the black line in uh when you see a fallen police officer sure. like T- Brian Terry, uh former Border Patrol from Michigan, fellow Michiganian, killed by a Fast and Furious gun at the border. Uh, and I've often shared, I, I've got a memorial shirt, yeah, where the badge has got the black line across it. That's symbolic mm-hmm. of the black armband, right? It, uh, those interesting, uh, traditions and how they evolve. We don't really do that at a funeral anymore, unless if it's for someone we recognize as a fall fallen hero and their wreath or their badge or their their portrait or whatever will be draped with that black band. You know, one part in the movie which I thought that Potter would have done something right was the part when Uncle Billy was in the bank and he had the paper and he had the money in there and he left it at the bank. Remember, there gets the Potter sees the money and he, he he's got the money and he, he could to, apply it, yeah, but he doesn't. Yeah, yeah. So he has the money and he opens the door and he sees Uncle Billy like scouring all over the place. And I thought there was that one moment, you know, he just he could just say, "Hey, here's the money," you know. But he didn't do that, and we never know what happened with that money. I mean, he got the jackpot at the end, but Mister Pop. Yeah, but you know, but again, back then. You don't show any cracks in the villain, right? You you can't make the villain at all relatable or shown to have one iota of good in them. <laughs> mm-hmm. We understand those ambiguities more. Again, like I called that episode 
of constitutionalist politics gray areas again. Well, I thought that part in the movie was uh, fascinating with Potter. I really, it was just, I, it was just, I wish he would have just given him the money and just said, hey, but he didn't do that. And then he wanted to, he wanted to arrest George. He wanted to make sure George, because he thought he, he, he trying to accuse him of a false crime, which he didn't do. And I thought at that point in the movie where he got on to Uncle Billy, I mean, when he was screaming and yelling at him, I thought that was, uh, that was when he really like lost it and went and that's when it started to really go rock bottom. Yeah. Well, that's again, in part, there's the politics of Potterville that I wrote about the evil tyrant taking any chance to seize, to put away or eliminate, remove from the picture in any way, shape or form his competition, his enemies. So some of the reviews that came out for It's a Wonderful Life were, were they weren't bad. I don't think that they were terrible. They didn't help, but. <laughs> right, exactly. They didn't help. And I thought that, uh, you know, if you look back now and you had to do a review, it would be very, very interesting. So here's a review that Roger Ebert did back in the late 80s. And it was about It's a Wonderful Life. So I like to get a a, a look at because Cisco and Ebert were like they were yeah. like in movies. Yeah. So this is just, just some of the thing that he said about this. Th- that was the best thing that happened to It's a Wonderful Life, bringing cheer into the lives of director Frank Capra and star James Stewart, who both consider it their favorite film. The worst thing, which has inspired Stewart to testify before a congressional committee and Capra to issue a sickened plea, sickbed plea, is that the movie has been colorized. Movies in the public domain are so defenseless that you could cut one up to make you kill picks and who could legally prevent you. So a garish, colorized version destroying the purity of the classic original black and white images has seen uh, on cable is available for local syndication and is sold on cassette. Yeah, like I mentioned before, again, Capra hated that fact that colorized movies but again and and Siskel and Ebert being on the inside more or less of the movie industry would indeed be purists so I can see that comment but uh, today modern people are of color everything's in color they want to see things in color one of my favorite films of all time is called The Artist. I forget who does it, but that kind of touches the uh generational issue, right? You've got that black and white era, and you've got the color area. And in The Artist, it does a great job of dealing with the generational thing as a black and white silent movie film artist tries to transition to talkies and then color part half of the film is in black and white half of the film is in color and sound so if if you've got a young person who doesn't understand like the old Buster Keaton silent film days that's a film you want to 
set mm -hmm. them down to give them a historical perspective that it wasn't that long ago. Not only was everything in black and white, there was no sound. <laughs> Roger Ebert did this. Uh, he also said on this review, looking back, and it was actually done in the well, when laser just came out so it was early 2000s so he said what is remarkable about it's a wonderful life is how well it holds up over the years true that's me saying that it's one of those ageless movies like casablanca and the third man that improves with age some movies even good ones should only be seen once when we know that they when we know how they turn out they've surrendered their mystery and appeal other movies can be viewed in a definite number of times, like great music. They improve with familiarity. It's a Wonderful Life falls into the second category, and that category was other movies can be viewed in a definite number of times, like great music. They improve with familiarity. So, Capra is the second most represented filmmaker behind Spielberg on the American Film Institute's 100 Most Inspiring Movies of All Time, with four of his films on the list. They are Mr. Deed Goes to Town, 1936, uh, number 83, Meet John Doe from 41, number 49, Mr. Smith Goes to Washington from 39, and number five, I, although I didn't look up what the four are above that, but number five is it's a wonderful life from 46. So uh, it indeed it has definitely stood the test of time. And what you said about seeing things over uh, many cult classics now, uh, are, are indeed that way is just what is it? There are just certain things that people want that mess with all the throwing rice and throwing toast and all that stuff, you know, like happens. Because I was looking at the promotional poster for when It's a Wonderful Life came out back in 46, and there was nothing in that promotional poster that suggests it's a Christmas movie, which I found pretty interesting. It's considered a Christmas movie now, and he, he never intended, Capra, that is, never intended that it to be a Christmas movie. It actually was the first movie he made after returning from service in World War II, so that's He's pretty. He's, he's a pretty special guy. Did those documentary films? Served World War II, so which is kind of funny in a way, like the episode we talked before. It's a Wonderful Life was not written as a Christmas movie, nor intended to be, but we all think of it as, as opposed to Die Hard, <laughs> which. Uh, you could go to Picture House, The 12 Reasons Why Die Hard is a Christmas Movie, and people still insist that's not a Christmas movie when they intended it to be a Christmas movie. So, <laughs> And uh, real quick, uh, Jimmy Stewart, he also served in, as a private yep. at the end of World War II as a colonel in the Army Air Corps, fully decorated. Result of 20 combat missions, he flew over Germany as leader of a squadron of B-24s. Among the medals Jimmy Stewart won, he was awarded the two distinguished flying crosses. And uh, that's pretty, pretty impressive. So he is definitely an American hero. And I remember when he died in 1997, I mean, he was definitely John Wayne. He was one of those iconic actors uh, when he died. It was like, you know, you lost your grandfather because you would watch it. I'm going to go back and watch Mr. Smith Goes to Washington. 
many years ago, and I watched a little clip of it the other day, and his acting is totally different characters, but it's amazing how actors can play different parts. You know, Tom Cruise plays Maverick. Tom Cruise plays Jerry Maguire. Tom Cruise plays a a lawyer in A Few Good Men. It's amazing how the craft that they do, the actors and actresses, how they can do different genres, different characters, whether they be evil, heroic, villainous, uh, extraordinary. And Stuart was definitely a wholesome actor. Yeah, one actor that I consider epitomizes your point here is Dustin Hoffman. look at his early role. You, you know, you got the graduate and you, you've got others like you got Tootsie and you got look at the serious role in Rain Man. I mean, the breadth and width and depth of his various, very, very, very different roles is amazing. And Stewart was indeed like that. Uh, whereas John Wayne was pretty much John Wayne <laughs> in, in every film, right? And you see that in a lot of actors today. They're them. I, I, I oh, I could picture Raging Bull, who? De Niro. De Niro, yeah. Just I, De Niro. Yeah. De Niro, to me, is a one-dimensional guy, but a lot of people love him. To me, De Niro is always De Niro. Uh, but, you know, it, he can still add to a good movie and you know a lot of other actors can be one-dimensional but still provide a great element to a well-written movie and well-directed like Craig Burko I don't know if you know who that is not many will because he's not a big star or anything but he was in the Tom Cruise remake of War of the Worlds, and my God, was he horrible. But (laughs) one of my favorite movies of all time is The 13th Floor that was directed by Roland Emmerich. So a director can make a big difference out of pulling something out of an actor. Because Craig Bjurko, who I think is garbage in everything I see him in, was so fantastic in the 13th floor. <laughs> incredible, incredible, yeah. And uh, when you think about, you know, we just mentioned Tom Cruise, he was also in Rain Man with Dustin Hoffman. It's just, exactly. just that's the range actors can do and, and really succumb and get into that character. That mindset is extraordinary. And he also uh, appeared in some films for Alfred Hitchcock, did Jimmy Stewart, which I find. I got to go back and watch those two. It's just amazing uh, how he evolved over time as well. And he was willing to take on those different pieces. Like uh, going with Hitchcock is something that some might think would be odd. And who knows? Again, hindsight's always twenty twenty. Or we view things as in today, that might have been a big risk for him at that time, but he was probably a big enough star that it wasn't going to matter. And it obviously only enhanced his overall image and uh, ability to be seen as able to do all those different things. Mm -hmm. Nothing ventured, nothing gained, right? (laughs) Yeah, Yeah, right. 
You know, uh, we didn't talk about Donna Reed, who was definitely a she played that part just unbelievably and uh, Un- very underrated because yeah. Stewart gets all the doggone press, so to speak, right? The George character, but mm. the Donna Reed character and how she played it, and that they. They picked her. And again, like I say, a lot of people, I think, came back to that film because she grew so much more. And while people hadn't seen that before, out of love for her rather than Jimmy may have gone back and seen it. So her presence in there, I think, is still so underrated to this day. Yeah. And. When I was watching it, she was definitely the wholesome mother. Um, the part there where George were like really snapped when the, when Zuzu was sick upstairs and the other daughter was playing the piano. She, she was still just the strong. She was the rock of the family and George is like, like just self-destructing there. And she really, she was the rock of that family and she was really the, one of the key uh, obviously one of the key characters, but the way she just handled herself with dignity throughout all that, I don't think they could have found another another actress to do that because she pulled that off just beautifully in that scene there where George, you know, leaves the house. All the children are scared because he's slamming stuff and things like that. And she still had that o'clock. strength to say, please, yes, still, you know, pray for your father. I thought that was just unbelievable. Yeah, that's fun. You got a clock that announces the time. I just heard it. That's uh, <laughs> yeah, that's on my uh, my computer there. <laughs> uh, to your point about Donna Reed, they had a lot of different choices and options, but I can't imagine somebody else in that role. Again, somebody who may have obviously been much bigger in fame at that time, but were most of the women at that time had a degree of sexy edge to them. And a woman actress like that would have thrown off that point and that balance of her as the strong, stable homemaker. Yeah, I I wholeheartedly agree. And one thing I have here, I was given this picture here last year. This was a, it's a wonderful life. I know the listeners can't see it, but uh, I was given this. It's a print of George Bailey, Zuzu, and Donna Reed, Mary, and Uncle Billy. And it's a, got a little Christmas tree in the back, and they're all – I have it in a frame here, and I just – I love that. I love the picture. Just really – But But that's an important part, though, too. You notice how Billy is kind of off to the yeah. side. It, that's an important little tidbit in a film that unless if you do see multiple times, you miss a lot of these things that these writers put in, like to go back to Die Hard, all those little things that the writer put in to make that Christmassy, to make that a Christmas movie. If you watch it once and not watching carefully you can miss so many important little sub theme messages like that billy off to the side that he's still somehow a mystery and a part 
and and absent and you know uh, not an afterthought that's not what i want to say but you know a and not a distant memory i think you know what i'm trying yeah. to say or i think I'm he going. was more billy billy was more of he was a he was uncle billy so he's a family member and he probably didn't have the acumen and the leadership of george's father so he probably given the job because he was somehow related to the Baileys, Uncle Billy. So I think he was, he's an integral part of the movie, but I think as far as he added to the tension of George, um, especially when he lost that money, uh, when, when he was bragging about Harry getting the Presidential Medal of Honor, thought that was floating, and then he loses the money and he's freaking out. He well, uh, well, I'll come right in here, Mr. Carter. Although I shouldn't wonder when you okay reverse charges on personal long-distance calls. Uh, George, shall we hang up? No, no, he wants to talk to Uncle Billy. You just hold on. Now, if you'll cooperate, I'd like to finish with you by tonight. I want to spend Christmas in Elmira with my family. I uh, don't blame you at all, Mr. Carter. Just step right in here. We'll fix you up. December 24th. He's scouring, and and that's when, that's when George really got in his face and said, "Really, I, I mean, that's the another time that George just like really like got on him." Yeah, and, and that goes back to the uh, dichotomy of opposites can attract in a relationship, whereas, as you said, you had the Donna Reed character really the strong, 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 stable person and the Stewart character as a somewhat not unstable, but at times stressed and 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 indecisive and you know short not short fuse, but again, I'm having trouble getting the right words through my mouth oh. today, but <laughs> I think I you think know what I mean. Yeah, <laughs> absolutely. Absolutely. So, you know, uh, looking at uh, Clarence here, uh, wrapping this thing up almost, uh, Clarence, so at the end of the movie, you don't see, um, you don't see Clarence, you know, most, a lot of movies you see the person who has helped this person, you see them at the end of the movie, you know, a little wink and a nod or a hug or a, uh, driving by in a car, you know, getting in a car waving and thumbs up or something like that. The conduit for that was Mark Twain's Tom Sawyer. You know, he's carrying that Mark Twain book with him. And that was his way of communicating to George that he got his wings. I thought that was done beautifully with that. I thought that was and that really showed the real George Bailey at the end. I thought that was a tremendous, tremendous ending scene. Yeah, and I again, I think we all see the great value today in this film that so many people unfortunately missed out on then uh, and why they put so much money in it. I think everybody associated with that film knew they had something great, but for whatever reason, it just didn't sell, whether it was a fail in marketing and promotion or what, again, what other things were happening around the time that that came out and other films like the 13th floor that I mentioned. To me, 
that film is a much better Matrix-like film than The Matrix Quadology. But obviously, The Matrix went on to be a trilogy and now a quadology with Keanu Reeves and, you know, had the bigger stars. Both those original Matrix and 13th Floor came out in 1999. So Roland Emmerich's film landed up overshadowed by the other one, just by pure coincidence of other things that came out at the time. And I'm wondering if that is in part what can, what happened to It's a Wonderful Life. Cause again, we all see how great that is. And I think they knew they had a great product, but something just didn't gel to cause it to not box office as well as it clearly should have. Yeah, and that movie uh, was actually filmed in California. Uh, it was like 90-degree weather when they filmed that movie. It wasn't in, like, in cold or snow. So I thought these were that they were filming on set that they would, you know, it was, like, scorching hot, and they had those jackets on and things of that nature. <laughs> I thought that was uh, pretty interesting. Yeah, there, there's all, it always seems like, it's like, why in the world did you pick here to shoot that for winter scenes. And conversely, other films, you'll hear about actors and actresses talking about, oh my God, we're, we're filming a, a scene where a woman's in a bikini and they're somewhere where it's 30 degrees and you know, they're trying to blow warm air so she doesn't have goosebumps, right? <laughs> Why did you pick this place for a summer scene, it, it isn't helpful. <laughs> well, uh, Joseph M. Leonard, I want to thank you very much for uh, coming on my podcast. Uh, talk about It's a Wonderful Life. We can talk about It's a Wonderful Life, 1946, one of the most iconic movies ever in motion picture history. That every Christmas Eve, you can see it. I think it's on NBC, if I'm not mistaken, and I'll be watching it again this year as I watched it this past week. But, uh, Joseph, uh, I want to thank you for coming on to talk uh, a little bit of It's a Wonderful Life. And uh, thank you again for having me on. 